Stay tuned for a very special Pride Month edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. Brothers and sisters, when they insist we're just not good enough, not good enough, what do we do then? We'll look them in the eyes and say, we're going to do it anyway. 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 Something inside so strong Oh, I know that I can make it Though you're doing me wrong, so wrong You thought that my pride was gone Oh, 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 no, there's something inside so strong Oh, no, something inside so strong Something so strong. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. I'm Steve Pry. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Scooter J. Stevens. This is IMRU Presents Pride Out Loud, Episode 4. What comes next? Abraham Lincoln once said, The most reliable way to predict the future is to create it. On this episode, we talk to people who've done just that, to gauge where we are and where we're going as a movement. The battle for marriage equality was long and complex. Even in LGBT-friendly California, there were stops and starts. But battle, we did. On November 15, 2008, thousands of people in cities across the United States and 10 other countries protested California voters' approval of Proposition 8, which changed the state constitution to restrict the definition of marriage to opposite-sex couples and eliminated same-sex couples' right to marry. On Saturday, November 15th, people gathered on the steps of Los Angeles City Hall to protest the passage of California's Proposition 8, which redefined marriage to exclude same-sex couples. There were a few sweaty fanatics waving Bibles, but for the most part, the crowd was a supportive mix of gay and straight, young and old, white, and black, over 12,000 strong. I'm here today to convey my support of equality, respect, of dignity for all people, that in no situation should any group of people be denied the human rights that any other group has. Tell me who you are and why you're here today. Uh, to support gay marriage and uh, reappeal Proposition 8. How old are you and what grade are you in? I'm 13 and I'm in 8th grade. Why is this important to you? Well, because it's like we're all humans and um, we shouldn't be treated differently and we should all marry and I think that it's kind of stupid that people want to put their rules into other people's lives. What's your name and why are you here? My name is Katie Chavarine and I'm here to support my friends and their rights as well as my own and future generations. My name is Alan Evans and I'm here because of I support No On 8 because I'm a homosexual and I want to marry the guy I, I love someday and like fight for our rights I guess. 
we're here because we're married and we want to stay married and we want to give other people the same opportunity to get married just as we did. Hello there. We're from the Los Angeles House of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I'm Sister Wendy Pigsfly and we're here for the pancake breakfast. Wait, no, the twilight signing. No, wait. Actually, we're here to say thank you. Deeply felt thank you to every one of the people that showed up today because as you see, it's not just any community. It's all of us and all the people that are here deserve a big huge thank you. That's why we're here today. As a religious figure, were you surprised by the passage of Prop 8? No, I was surprised as a human being at the passage of Prop 8. As a religious figure, if people hold certain religious beliefs, that's fine. But that's why we have museums, to keep the dinosaurs. That's mean, I suppose. No, I take that back. Uh, I, w I think a lot of people really believed in their heart of hearts, no, no one could actually vote that way. Not if you know someone, not if you love someone. But look what's happening now, Stonewall 2.0. My name's Steve Abrams, a resident of Sherman Oaks. I'm here to stand up for civil rights for everybody, and it's, it's quite important that all of us stand up for the other group that's not us. As a child, when one walked into the Simon Wiesenthal Center, said, when we came for the gypsies, I was not a gypsy, so I didn't do anything. When they came for the gays, I was not a gay, so I didn't do anything. When they came for me, they took me too. And unless we stand up for the other group, they will take you as well. And it's so important in this day and age that you stand up for people that aren't just uh, people that look like you and act like you and are of the same religion. My name's Ed Mitchell. I'm a school teacher and this is my friend Marisa O'Donohue. She's also a school teacher and we're out here and we're in support of same-sex marriage. And why is this important to you? Well, it's equal rights. It's, you know, we're traipsing upon fundamental constitutional rights and it's about equality. It's outrageous. Where do we have the right to say you can get married and another group can't? It's outrageous. Sorry, last time I checked, gay people pay taxes too and just listening to all the hate behind us or the yes on Prop 8, it's outrageous. Just the the ignorance and the intolerance, and it's all about a religious issue, and it's not supposed to be about that. I, I'm gay and she's straight, but um, she's going to be my spokesperson now, man. You're awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love my friend, and I just can't believe that he is not going to be treated the same as I am going to be treated. And why do I have special rights? And he does. It's outrageous. I just don't understand that. Tell me who you are and why you're here. I'm Ron Goldhammer, and I'm here to protect my family. I have three children and a husband, been together 12 years, and we just want what everybody else wants. You know, a happy life and be productive and take care of our children. My name is Karen and I live locally and I'm here to support the gay community. Her husband's with her. <laughs> and then why are you here? Because it's uh, unconstitutional. When the majority take rights away from the minority is unconstitutional. My name's Lisa and I'm here to help support gay rights. I'm a straight woman in my 40s, but I don't think it's fair that some people have rights and others don't. Banning marriage isn't going to stop gays from being together, so you'd think that religious people would want people to be married and say, hey, we're making a commitment, we love each other, and we're not going to part. I'm a minister, Unitarian Universalist minister, and I'm here because I believe this is a justice issue. Equality for all. And it's all about love, and those people who are preaching hate, that's, that's not what it's about. Should marriage be a religious ceremony? I actually think no, and I've taken a pledge to no longer sign off on marriage licenses. I'll do spiritual ceremonies, but I won't be signing on licenses anymore. The people have spoken! The people have spoken! The people have spoken! Deal with it, homosexuals! Not only has California and Arizona and Florida, that has spoken for you! The people have spoken! So much for democracy, you despise
democracy. In fact, sodomites, this is not democracy. We live in a republic as found in the Pledge of Allegiance. You don't know what the word republic is. You despise democracy. Religious intolerance. You're a Christian, you say. I will not allow your vote to count. You had your equal rights at the ballot box, and you lost. That's wrong. You had your time for equality, and like you lost. Everyone's right, Take it like a man, homosexual. Take it like a man. rights. It is about separation of state and church. It is about human dignity. It is about the value we place on the lives and the quality of life of gays, lesbians, transgenders, bisexuals. You are our community. We must stand with you. From Selma to Stonewall, this is the fight today. On this day, in cities across the United States, similar crowds gathered to show their support. 700 in Jacksonville, Florida. 14 in Aberdeen, Washington. 5,000 in Phoenix, Arizona. 40 in Billings, Montana. In all, it was the sound of over a million LGBT people, their families, and their friends, speaking with one voice, demanding to be heard. The Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, was a federal law that defined marriage as the union of one man and one woman, and allowed states to refuse to recognize same-sex marriages from other states, while the final nail in the DOMA coffin was the Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges. The blow that started its unraveling was United States v. Windsor, which overturned Section 3 and extended rights, privileges, and benefits to married same-sex couples. Roberta Kaplan argued the case. Could you give me a brief overview of the facts of the case? Sure. So my client, Edie Windsor, I'm going to tell you her life story because that really is the facts of the case. She grew up in Philadelphia during the Depression. Her family lost their home and their business during the Depression. She went to college at Temple University. And even though she says she fell in love with a woman in college and she realized she was a lesbian, the idea back then, this was the 50s, that you could ever have a life with another woman, putting aside Patricia Highsmith novels and the movie Carol, the idea that that could ever happen was inconceivable to her. So she had been engaged to a guy. She broke off the engagement in college because of this woman. She then, after college, got reengaged to the guy. That's how she gets the name Windsor. She was married. Needless to say, the marriage did not last very long. She basically said to her husband, she basically came out to him and said, you deserve to be loved the way you deserve to be loved, mm. and I need something else. And like so many people, myself included, a few decades later, she moved to New York City in order to be gay. Now, interestingly, the biggest issue for Edie upon moving to New York City was not being gay. 
because anyone who was middle class or up and gay at that point in time had to be completely closeted. You could not live your life otherwise. If you were going to be out, you really were putting yourself at the margins of society, and that's not what most people did. So the bigger problem she had was being a woman because it had always occurred to her or she'd always assumed that she'd get married and that her husband would support her. That's what women did back then. And now she needed to get a job. So she had been good, apparently, at algebra in high school. So she decided to enter the mathematics graduate program at NYU. She became one of the earliest software programmers in the country. She got a job to work her way through grad school, working on what was then the biggest computer in the world called the UNIVAC computer, which was operated by the Atomic Energy Commission. In order to keep that job, she needed, and no pun intended here, but she needed Q security clearance. (laughs) One day, she got a letter from the FBI saying, we don't think you need a lawyer yet, but we'd like to talk to you. She was petrified, and she was right to be petrified, because back then it was a felony. It was a crime for anyone who was gay or lesbian to have any employment with the federal government whatsoever. And back then, we're talking the 50s. This is the late 50s, and you couldn't even work for a company that had contracts with the government like IBM, as Edie later did, that was also illegal. So she did a little research under New York law. It turned out she was right. And that back then, according to her research, for a lesbian as opposed to a gay man, and the law was different, for a lesbian, what was illegal was to dress as a man. So Edie shows up at her FBI interview in high heels, a frilly dress and crinolines, hoping, as she said, to throw the FBI off their game. Fortunately for Edie, and fortunately, I would say, for the rest of this country and for U.S. history, the FBI only really cared about whether her sister had friends who were in the teachers' union and who were communists, and they never asked her whether she was a lesbian. But imagine that today. I mean, especially for people younger than me. The idea that you could be called in, asked whether you were gay, knowing that if you told the truth, and Edie was determined to tell the truth, that that would not only be the end of your job, but the end of your career. Yeah, It's almost inconceivable today. So time went on. She got a job at IBM, as I mentioned. She did extremely well there. She had a fellowship at Harvard and then came back to New York. Upon coming back to New York, one night she called a friend. She was living on the Upper West Side, and she said she was the only person in her building who ever wore jeans. She decided to call a friend and said, kind of desperate, saying, I'm so lonely. I don't know any lesbians. Can you please take me where the lesbians go? And her friend took her to a restaurant in the village, then operated by Elaine Kaufman, who who went on to start Elaine's, which on Friday nights, apparently, lesbians went to. And at the restaurant, some friends brought over a woman by the name of Thea Spire to her table. As far as Edie was concerned, it was love at first sight. Not the same for Thea. Thea had a series of girlfriends over the next two years, and Edie kept kind of waiting She finally heard the news that Thea was single and was going out to the Hamptons for a weekend. And so she begged some people who really weren't even friends. They were acquaintances. She called them up and said, would you mind if I come and stay at your your house for the weekend? (laughs) They agreed. Thea ended up showing late and Edie was incredibly frustrated. It's proof that lesbian drama has always been with us. Exactly the right. Exactly right. And that was the beginning. And then they went on to spend the next 40 years of their lives together. A couple years after that, Thea pulled over by the side of the road and pulled out a circular diamond pin and said to Edie, this was 1967, will you marry me? The reason she had a pin instead of a ring is because Edie had said to her, I can't show up with a diamond ring at work because everyone will want to know who's the lucky guy and I can't answer that question. To me, the idea that two women in 1967 could even have the thought enter their heads that they could get engaged is a fact that I never 
It's amazing. I mean, Stonewall happened two years later. And then the truly heroic part of their lives is what happened for the next 40 years because Thea was diagnosed with a really terrible form of multiple sclerosis. And over time, she lost the use of her legs and then her arms. And by the end time she died, she was quadriplegic. Edie has said that that diagnosis happened to both of them. They had a refrigerator magnet that said, seize joy. And they really tried to live that. And the day that Thea died, she actually had patients she was supposed to see. So they really made sure as little in their life changed as possible. And then they couldn't get married. They wanted to get married. And Edie had said to Thea, let's go to Canada. They couldn't get married in New York. That's my fault because I lost the New York marriage case. Sorry about that. Yeah, I but think I kind of paid them back. You but... handled that case admirably. And so one day Thea got a very bad diagnosis from the doctors that said that she didn't really have much more time to live. And even though in the past she'd been reluctant to travel because if you're paralyzed, traveling is really, really hard. She woke up the next morning and she said to Edie, do you still want to get married? Edie said, I do. And they went to Toronto with four best women and two best men, someone who could disassemble and reassemble the wheelchair. They got married at the Toronto Airport Hilton so they could wheel the wheelchair directly to the room. Sadly, a couple years later, Thea passed away. And that's how the case really started. That was a very long preamble. I'm sorry. Uh, But it's a great story. I don't get tired of it. That's how the case really started because upon Thea's death, Edie realized that she had to pay essentially a tax on being gay, that all the property that they had accumulated over their many years together, it was as if Edie had inherited it from a stranger. So she got this whopping $350,000 state tax bill. She paid it. You have to do that if you want to fight it. So she paid the bill. And then she went looking for a lawyer. And that's how the case started. Kaplan represented Edith Windsor pro bono. Edie died in 2017 at the age of 88. Behind the word homosexual, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Austrian-born Karl Maria Kurtbeni became a journalist and author. He settled in Berlin in 1868 at the age of 44. Coining the word homosexual, he published two pamphlets arguing that the Prussian sodomy law violated the rights of man. An original libertarian, he believed that private, consensual sexual acts had no place in criminal law. With Kurtbeni's newly coined word gaining wider circulation, he proposed that homosexuality was inborn and unchangeable which at the time was a bold new concept. Kurt Benny's interest in the subject of homosexuality began as a young man. A close friend of his, who was homosexual, killed himself after being blackmailed by an extortionist. From that moment forward, Kurt Benny developed what he called an instinctive drive to take issue with every injustice. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Alan Brown. Hello, I'm Robbie Kaplan, the author of Then Comes Marriage, United States v. Windsor and the Defeat of Doma. And you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Barney Frank served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Massachusetts. Frank was considered the most prominent gay politician in the United States during his time in Congress. In 2009, he sat down in the studio with IMRU's Abby Dees. As a member of the House for 32 years, from 1981 to 2013, former Congressman from Massachusetts, Barney Frank, was a key player in the history of LGBT civil rights, as well as a committed advocate for civil rights in all its forms, free speech, and fair economic policy. He's penned a political memoir called Frank, 
A Life in Politics, From the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. Barney Frank, I have read your book, and it's not a tell-all. It's not like the loves of Barney Frank. It really is, to me, kind of a defense of old-style progressivism and a vindication of the word liberal. And what's funny to me is that what comes across in this book is that you are clearly an idealist and a believer in politics, but your biggest criticism of the left seems to be that the left is not willing to be pragmatic and not willing to make concessions in their idealism. Would you agree with that? Yes, and I appreciate the way you phrase that because people who act as if pragmatism and idealism are opposites, I think, are doomed to frustration and futility. Obviously, you start with ideals. I don't think you have any business in politics and trying to use government to coerce people, which is what government ultimately does, unless there's a moral purpose, unless you're trying to make things fairer, trying to make things less unequal. But once you have a set of ideals, if you are not realistic about implementing them, then what good are they? All they do is make you feel good. Ideals that you have that you don't really effectively try to implement They're kind of a warm bath for you, but they don't feed a hungry child or clean up a river or do anything that's useful. During the Don't Ask, Don't Tell debates, you formulated a rule that sort of reminds me of the warm bath that you're talking about. And you said, if you care deeply about an issue and are engaged in a group activity on its behalf that is fun and inspiring and heightens your sense of solidarity with others, that would be the warm bath, I think, you are almost certainly not doing your cause any good. (laughs) Yeah, look, it's much easier to go to a rally where everybody agrees, where you can have a nice uh, drum circle, where you can (laughs) sing songs and and reassure each other of our virtue, but that doesn't advance the cause. Now, on the other hand, it's a mistake. You're not doing much by going out and yelling at those who most disagree with you. You write them off. But our job, if we're trying to improve society, is to persuade people who are amenable to persuasion but aren't yet with us and try to couch our arguments in terms that will appeal to them. And one contrast I like to draw is between the March on Washington in 1963, which was under the general auspices of A. Philip Randolph with Martin Luther King as the star speaker. The chief strategist was a gay man, Bayard Rustin, one of the great heroes who only recently has gotten the recognition he had. And Bayard Rustin was a genuinely zealous idealist who was also very smart. And what he did was to structure that march So it had the maximum appeal to white people so they could say, look, do you really want to be in a country where we African-Americans are treated so badly? And here's what you can do to help. Then you had the March on Washington that the LGBT movement had in 1993, which was a big party, which was a chance for us to indulge our feelings and to have a good time, but unfortunately in some ways alienated people. And for those who say, well, why are you worried about that? That's not a true militant. John Lewis, who was one of the great moral heroes of my generation, who was beaten almost to death on behalf of civil rights 50 years ago, people are seeing those movies now, makes it very clear. He submitted four or five drafts of his speech for the March on Washington to be vetted because they didn't want him to say things that were going to alienate people. They wanted to get their point across. And the purpose of all this is to be effective, not to give release to our emotions. You mentioned something at the 1993 March in Washington that I remember so clearly. And as a lesbian activist myself, it sent chills through me. And it was when a comedian got up in 1993, a woman on C-SPAN, I believe it was the first time that we'd gotten any sort of national attention in the media. And the first thing out of her mouth, at least that's how I remember it, was, ah, Hillary Clinton, she's the first first lady you'd want to F. 
And I was very happy that you mentioned that because I've been wondering if I had just made this up. No, you're exactly right. And I, I again, analogize it. Suppose Red Fox, who was a very funny man, and the comedian in question is a very funny woman. Oh, yeah. and she's she's actually been a crossover. She's been a major Broadway star. She's very she's funny. Very successful woman. But this was self-indulgence. This wasn't helping. The purpose of the march was to get support for repealing the ban on gays in the military and for anti-discrimination. And how does it help to drive away some people? And I guess the analogy would have been if Red Fox, who was a very funny, uh, was African-American, had gotten up and the first thing he said was how much he would want to have sex with Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> if he'd have done that, I guarantee you that, that A. Philip Randolph would have had him thrown into the reflecting pool head first. So, yeah, that was the contrast. Uh, and again, there's a time for that. Comedians, that was what I was going to ask. Is there a time the movie, for Yeah, that? sure. After the march is over, let's have our own parties. I'm not saying we don't have fun. Of course you have fun. But that's not your political outreach. You want to make your political point, then you go to our own gatherings and, yeah, with some other people, and that's when you get your emotions and and, and have your humor go forward. But looking at the LGBT movement in particular, can you also see that many of us have experienced being in the closet? We probably all experience being in the closet at some point. Not anymore, I think. the kids are coming out at four. They're coming out, days. but many yeah, still and I are. That. I, Would you say that there has got to be some power, though, in being able to stand yes. up and claim that but, I, here I am? But that's true. No, in the first place, that was very important. And I'm not saying that there isn't a need for the demonstrative side. I was all in favor of the March on Washington 63. It's what you choose to present. It was very important for blacks to say, well, let me go back a step. In 1964, in the summer, I went to Mississippi as part of the Freedom Summer. That was to be visible and to illustrate to white America that black people in Mississippi were not allowed to vote. It was very important for us to be public about that. Early on in the movement for LGBT rights, yeah, we were the hidden minority. It was very important to say we're here and you've got to pay attention to us. So the argument is not against visibility. It's what's visibility for. Visibility as an emotional release, no. When I came out in 1987, we were still in an early stage of things, I made a point of going with my then-boyfriend places and uh, holding hands and dancing because we wanted to, to do that, but we didn't do it in a way that was calculated to offend. That's, that's the difference. That, yes, I, I want to be affirmative about that. And uh, it is also the case that we have a right to enjoy ourselves, but those are done in separate venues from your political venue. How do we get that point across to our community without alienating part of our community? Well, it's a two-step thing. I accept the fact that I alienated some people, but you know, people in my business, my former business, politics, give ourselves too much credit because we stood up to our enemies. Well, standing up to your enemies is fun and probably profitable because you can send out a fundraising letter about how they've attacked you. (laughs) Standing up to your friends is harder. And uh, I I think in some cases people get mad at me, but that opened the space for other people to say, well, all right, maybe he offended you, but but do it this way. And I think the thing to do, again, is that's why I try to analogize it to the African-American movement. Comparing the March on Washington in 63, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, yeah, you remember I Have a Dream rather than I'd like to F the First Lady. (laughs) I remember that other one, too. An active activist and award-winning journalist. Michelangelo Signorelli was inducted into the NLGJA, National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association Hall of Fame. Hey, Mike, you have a new book. What's it called and what's it about? It's not over. 
Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. It really is a title that packs a wallop, but had to really kind of lay out exactly what it is that this moment is about and try to telegraph to people in a title something they may perceive or maybe hadn't thought about, but that they should think about. It's pretty amazing how often in this movement, and I think we could go back many years, have thought that we had arrived only to be woken up by a horrible moment. Of course, I think the most dramatic example of that was the AIDS epidemic. People really had thought they'd come out of the closet, they'd had a sexual liberation movement, they could dance on the dance floor all night, they (laughs) were visible, and then AIDS came and they realized, wow, people hate us, they despise us, the government isn't saving us, the religious right is determined to exterminate us. And so I think we've had these moments in the past, and I was trying to warn, and we're not unique to it, every movement has it, that this is another one of those moments. And I think Indiana and Arkansas certainly was a splash of cold water in the face to a lot of people because they not only saw the religious right backlash, but they did see debates pop up in their own families, among their own friends about, well, shouldn't people have the right not to serve someone if their religious beliefs conflict with that. And I think because we won the media battle with that and the big business rose up and the governor was forced to backtrack, some people think that was a victory. You have to zoom out and look at the fact that they've been working on this religious liberty campaign for a while. I go to the Conservative Political Action Conference. I go to Values Voters Summit. I saw them crafting it. And they operate through trial and error, and they operate with the idea that they're going to lose battles, and they rely on two things, rewording and retailoring and rebranding these bills, and luck. Uh, And the luck part is they know the media is very fickle. They know big business is very fickle. They even know LGBT activists will be sleeping on the job. So they rely on that. And if you look at the real trajectory of these bills, Arizona, that was a trial balloon that didn't work. Jan Brewer vetoed the bill because the media really focused on it. The Super Bowl was threatened. The NFL was threatening to pull out. But a few weeks later, the media shifted to ISIS or whatever they shifted to. And Mississippi passed one of these bills very quietly. And the Family Research Council saw it as a bill that will definitely allow a wedding planner or a bakery or whatever other business not to serve gay couples. The ACLU was warning about it, but there was no attention paid to it. So they passed it in Mississippi. And then three weeks before the Arkansas and Indiana debacle over the Religious Restoration Freedom Acts, Arkansas passed a horrifically draconian bill that rescinded all local anti-discrimination ordinances for LGBT people, and it also made it so that you can't pass any. And they did it in a way that some legal experts believe will be able to withstand court scrutiny because it doesn't mention gay people. The Supreme Court had ruled you can't target gays in the Romer v. Evans case, When Colorado tried to do this, they passed a ballot measure that rescinded all the local ordinances. But this new wording doesn't mention gays. It simply says any group that is not already protected 
statewide can't be protected by a local ordinance. So it was a very crafty reframing. And my warning is they got it done and nobody was paying attention. And three weeks later, we had then the Religious Restoration Freedom Act, which in Arkansas was overkill because they passed this bill anyway. And everybody was celebrating that big business came out. But if you look at the big picture, they did pretty good, the religious right. Yeah, they had a failure in Arizona. Yeah, this Indiana thing was bad PR. They still passed the bills. It's still broader than the uh, federal Religious Restoration Freedom Act. But uh, then, then they got this bill passed in Arkansas. So they did pretty good. And now they're moving on to Louisiana and other states. That's what they do. But I have relatives in Indiana who say that gays are just too intolerant of intolerance. Are we losing a PR battle with more moderate Christians? I think that sometimes it is just bad planning on our part where we focus in on one particular business and make them out to be the bullies and the scapegoats. And sometimes these people, they're the true believers. They really feel like they are victims and they get a lot of support when we should be focused on the people who cynically plan these bills, the people who exploit the uninformed and uneducated opinions of some of these other people who we sometimes target, we should be really targeting the people like the Family Research Council, Alliance Defending Freedom, all the groups that create these bills and then rely upon exploiting the true believers who really do feel that their religious freedom is threatened and need to be educated about it. So I think sometimes we don't go about it right, but I wouldn't say that that means we should not be confrontational and we should not be challenging because that's what I think is a trap. People say, oh, we look harsh. We should pull back. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, wrote a column during that week of Indiana saying, gays should lower their tone. They're winning. And I think that's a mistake. It allows a space for the backlash to organize. Breaking news, the U.S. Supreme Court with a historic civil rights ruling today. Landmark ruling for gay and transgender individuals. This is a major civil rights opinion. The most consequential Supreme Court decision since same-sex marriage was legalized five years ago. Thank you U.S. Supreme Court's fourth decision involving lesbians and gay men is its first to recognize transgender people. It marks a monumental advance for LGBTQ rights, but it comes with limitations. So we're turning to a gaggle of experts to sort it all out. Just what did the high court rule on June 15th? It confirmed that the word sex in the list of categories protected from workplace discrimination under federal law does include sexual orientation and gender identity. The decision answered three consolidated cases based on Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Gerald Bostock lost his job as a county child welfare official in Georgia when his boss found out that he had joined a gay softball team. New York skydiving instructor Don Zarder was fired when he came out to a client to ease her anxiety about being so closely strapped together. Amy Stevens had worked at a Michigan funeral home for six years and was let go two weeks after announcing her transition. This truly is a historic ruling. 
One of Amy Stevens' attorneys was Chase Strangio, Deputy Director for Transgender Justice with the ACLU's LGBT and HIV Project. The court was unequivocal that federal prohibitions on sex discrimination include prohibitions on discrimination against LGBTQ people. So this means you cannot be fired across the country for being LGBTQ or otherwise face employment discrimination. Heath Davis is the director of Temple University's Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies program. I mean, everything about this kind of boils down to the definition of sex discrimination. Definitions expand over time and that we have a lot of evidence that trans and lesbian and gay bisexual people are just, are often discriminated against because of the way that they express their gender. That it makes sense to include us in those definitions. The ruling does not apply to military personnel. About 14,700 service members identify as transgender. They're required to serve as the gender they were assigned at birth. The court's expansion of the legal definition of sex discrimination contrasts with the Trump administration's narrowing of the same term in a rule change to the Affordable Care Act to exclude transgender and gender nonconforming people just last week. Davis says the decision doesn't immediately impact the health care rule change. It's- like two different things kind of going on as far as sort of like the executive branch and Congress, you know, balance of power. It could make legal challenges to the change more likely to succeed. From Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Lily Bulky. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. The tables turn on the cops coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the 1960s, the mafia-controlled gay bars in New York City were routinely raided by the cops. They would enter a bar, check ID, impound all liquor, arrest management, and some patrons. This usually occurred early in the evening, so the bar could reopen later. But in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, the cops were in for a surprise. The patrons fought back, throwing coins at them, then cobblestones and bricks, which forced them to barricade themselves inside the bar. Stunned, scared, and way outnumbered, Deputy Inspector Pine called for backup. Meanwhile, the angry crowd outside took control of the streets, stopping traffic. The next day, a headline read, Homo nest raided. Queen bees are stinging mad. They decided not to take it anymore, and the world was changed forever. It was the birth of gay liberation. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Cleve Jones is an LGBT icon. From working as an aide to Harvey Milk to creating the AIDS Memorial Quilt, he has been at the forefront of the movement since the 70s. His memoir, When We Rise, My Life in the Movement, was even turned into a TV miniseries penned by Dustin Lance Black and starring Guy Pearce as Cleve. Hi, this is Cleve Jones. What are the challenges you see going forward for the gay community? I believe that gay people, and probably transgender people as well, so let's just say I believe that LGBT folks will probably achieve equal protection under the law in my lifetime. I think that we will see it. I think that the sea change that is happening in the new generation makes it almost an inevitability. Now, that doesn't mean we can rest. But I believe if we all keep pushing in in the ways that we've been pushing, that we're going to achieve that goal of equal protection under the law. So then we look at what is our role? What do we do after we've 
succeeded in getting that acknowledgement from the government that we have the same rights as anyone else. And I would like to see much of that energy that has been focused on the political arena, focused on schools and police departments and combating the homophobic attitudes within the schools, within law enforcement. But also, I am gay, and being gay has been certainly a very important part of my life. But I will die if I do not have clean air to breathe. I will die if I don't have shelter. I will suffer greatly if the gap between the rich and the poor continues to widen. I think that the whole world is facing such extraordinary challenges right now. We live in a time of really great peril. And I think gay people have a responsibility, like everyone else. But I do think that gay people are special in some ways. And those attributes that have made it so difficult to be an organizer in our community, the incredible differences between us, also can be a great strength. So my hope for our community and our movement as we move forward is that we will be the bridge builders, that because we exist in every color of skin, because we were raised in every type of family, that maybe we can be part of the process of uniting people to address the gravest issues that affect us all, of war, of poverty. And as I grow older, I really have come to believe that the greatest divide and the most destructive divide between us is not sexual orientation or, or gender or even race. It's class. It's about money and power and the new economy that we're living in that I think is going to create even greater misery and poverty for ordinary people all across the planet and leads us to make the most terrible, appalling, destructive decisions that destroy our environment and set us all up for a real nightmare. So I'm still gay and I'm still caring about gay people, but I'm putting my energies into the labor movement right now. I want to do whatever I can in the years that remain to me to help build power for working class people, gay and straight and black and brown and young and old, we need to reinvigorate the labor movement and we need to help all working class people understand that it matters who you fall in love with, it matters what color you are, but we are gonna sink or swim together. Cleve, when I interviewed Russian activist Nikolai Alexeev, he spoke about the morphing of our gay advocacy organizations into massive nonprofits he called Gay Incorporated. And you and I have talked about this. Here in L.A., one of the hardest-working LGBT community organizers that we both know is Tanner Effinger, who's an unpaid activist. Meanwhile, paid advocates like Lori Jean at the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center wear the activist mantle and pull down $400,000 a year. This is, I believe, you know, an inevitable historic process that groups that start out on the fringe with no money become uh, brought into the mainstream to some extent. But I don't feel any connection to those organizations anymore. I think they're all irrelevant. And I'm talking about almost all of them. I'll just go, and let me just go ahead and say this. I think that 
The last two years have been the most extraordinary two years in the history of our movement. I've never seen anything like what I have seen in the last two years. We have moved forward in a profound way. I don't give any credit for that to any of these established groups, not Human Rights Campaign, not the Task Force, not uh, National Center for Lesbian Rights, not Lambda Legal. It's come from an insurgency. It's come from the kids in the street again, which I never thought I'd see happen again. It's come from people, individuals like Dan Savage. Uh, it's come from the kids taking their gay and partners to the proms. It's an amazing time, but I'm very angry with some of these established groups, but I, I think sometimes people are picking on the wrong things. Um, however, I got to say, the salary issue, let me give you as an example the National Equality March. Every established national group in the country tried to stop it. They all attacked me. They attacked everybody who supported it. And a lot of others. Robin Tyler attacked it. I mean, it was probably the only time Robin Tyler and Dave and uh, Joe Salmanese have agreed on something. But they both agreed that you know it was terribly wrong of me to call for this march. And uh, despite that, despite the fact that none of the established groups endorsed it, despite being trashed all over the country for it, two hundred and fifty thousand young queer people and their straight friends supporters showed up. And do you know what our total expense was? Everybody said, oh, you're going to spend millions of dollars. You're going to bankrupt the community. You're going to divert all these resources from these other fights. Our total budget for the National Equality March in 2009 was $154,000. And almost every penny of that went to porta-potties and a basic minimal stage and sound system. We had no office space. We had no printing. We had no salaries. You mentioned Tanner Effinger. Effin he was one of our volunteers. He was working in a gay bar here in West Hollywood on weekends and then coming over to my house in Palm Springs to work without pay every day, week after week after week, for which he was trashed and ridiculed. One of the bloggers said he was uh, Cleve Jones's highly paid boy toy, which was really pretty insulting. He could do much better than me, <laughs> and he wasn't getting paid a cent. But we don't encourage that kind of, of activism. We don't. Just a reminder, I'm Steve Pride, and my guest tonight is Cleve Jones. Go on. But I got, I got bigger issues than how much these people get paid. Lori Jean, I remember seeing her on television after the Prop 8 defeat, in which she acknowledged that the campaign that she was largely responsible for had failed to reach communities of color and immigrants. Yet when the workers at the Century Plaza Hotel called for a boycott of the Century Plaza Hotel. Lori Jean declined repeated requests to meet with gay and lesbian workers at the Century Plaza and insisted on holding a fundraiser for the community center at that event. So I work for the Hotel Workers Union. That's who I work for. I'm, I'm in the labor movement. And I just thought this was astonishing that this woman whose decisions were at least partly responsible for a terrible defeat at the polls, an abysmally run campaign. Then when that campaign is over, she acknowledges that part of the mistake was an inability to reach out to people of color, to working class people. We all understand this, that we have failed. We've won over a great many white intellectuals and liberals. Now we need to do a little bit harder work and get into these minority communities and communities of faith and immigrant populations. So here's a struggle pitting ordinary working class people
people from in Los Angeles against giant corporations in a basic struggle for fair pay and safe working conditions and access to health care. Lori Jean won't meet with the LGBT workers and insists on violating the boycott. It enrages me. Human Rights Campaign gives Hyatt Corporation a 100% rating on their so-called Corporate Equality Index. They say Hyatt's a great place to work. Well, Hyatt workers disagree. And that's why we've got boycotts in over a dozen Hyatt hotels in the United States and Canada. So this gets back to, to me the big issue, which is that our movement, the LGBT movement, is part of a larger movement. And we need to accept that history, celebrate, embrace that history, and understand that that is where the moral strength of our movement derives. We're part of a much bigger effort. And anything we've had to confront, I look at the AIDS pandemic, what happened to my generation of gay men, 80% of us did not survive. If you came out between 1970 and 1975, you were a gay man, 80% of us didn't make it. But that is just the tiniest fragment of the big picture that is the HIV horror show, you know? So we need to fight for our rights, but I really think that there's a great many of our leaders who, once we win uh, marriage equality, are just going to think everything's fine, and I don't. We've got a lot of challenges ahead of us, and I want us all to be part of that struggle because the perils ahead are really really scary. And uh, it's so important that people pay attention right now and be smart and read their history and reach out to build coalitions. If we don't build coalitions, if we don't take this country back, I don't think we're going to have that opportunity again in the future. So what do you think Harvey Milk would think of the LGBT movement today? I believe and I'm reasonably confident that Harvey would agree with this, that a movement that seeks only to advance the narrow interests of its own members is a shallow movement, and one that probably is destined to have little impact on the lives of actual people. The movements that really change lives, the movements that touch the hearts of millions of people, are those movements that find common ground, and build struggles based on those commonalities rather than focusing on the differences. It's so ironic. If someone had told me in 1973 when I joined Gay Liberation, as we quaintly called it then, if you had told me that I would, in the year 2011, be fighting for the right to join the army and get married, I think I probably would have tried to date women. I mean, it just, there was this revolutionary potential to our movement that was very exciting to me. And, you know, now um, it's not so much. Uh, and I'm distressed by that. And I want young people in particular to understand that we're more than a market. We're not just some demographic subset for corporations to market products to. We are more than that. And one of the problems, though, is that we are so different from each other look at any other minority, and they have so much more to bind them together. Magnus Hirschfeld, the great German homosexual emancipation movement activist during the Weimar Republic, complained about this in 1927, saying that homosexuals have no sense of solidarity, that there's no 
group of people less disposed to organize together to fight for their own fundamental rights than homosexuals. So this has been a problem for a while. But joking aside, gay people are born into rich families and poor families. We're born into black and brown and white skins. We're born into families of Hindu faith or Muslim or Baptist or Catholic or Mormon or no faith at all. We're born into families of different political ideologies, different national backgrounds, different histories. So you look at, for example, the African-American community, and they share so much from the superficial attributes of their physical being to their shared history, the histories of their families, their faith, their culture, the music, everything. We're not like that. What we have in common is that we're different, and we're different in a way that has to do with gender and sexuality, and we're different in the ways that that difference has moved us internally, how we've responded to it. But whether people want to admit it or not, whether they like it or not, our movement grew out of the larger movement. Our movement grew out of the peace movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement. Those are our roots. And if we shed that past, if we disregard that past, I believe we do so at great peril. And increasingly, I find that the community and its leadership I find many of them to be self-absorbed, unconcerned about the larger issues. And part of it is the inexorable process of American capitalism that takes every revolutionary idea and turns it into a commodity. Any regrets? <laughs> you know, show me a 56-year-old man with no regrets and I'll show you a man with amnesia. If I could go back and tell myself something. I wish I had understood when I was young how quickly people you love can be taken away from you. I, I always tell young people now to cherish the friendships that they make early in their lives, before they've accomplished anything, before they've become their full self. You know, those, those people that knew you before, hold on to those. I have so many regrets, but the only regrets I have that keep me awake at night are the people that I failed to tell I love them. You know, the, the ones that I, I thought, well, I don't need to see him today. I can wait. I can see him next week. There are too many of those. And uh, I've made so many mistakes, but those are the ones that really bother me. What are you proudest of? I'm proud that I'm still around. I'm proud that I still have a sense of humor. I am not jaded. I don't think I'm cynical. I'm realistic. I've been around, but I think I've avoided cynicism. I still fall in love. This has been a conversation with innovator, educator, activist, and friend, Cleve Jones. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Hey, we shall We shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Darling, here in my heart, here I do believe, we shall overcome someday.